Mackenzie Cohn was born on June 14, 1996 in Dakar, Georgia. She was born with and has the connective tissue disorder osteogenesis imperfecta, which is most associated with brittle bones. As a result, Cohn has broken over 50 bones in her lifetime. Cohn attended a specialised programme for high school, which allowed her to be in a normal classroom part of the week and at home for the other days, which allotted more time and flexibility to her swimming training schedule. Cohn graduated from high school in 2014 and was academically ranked the top in her class. Cohn is an S6, S7 category swimmer who is ranked first in the world in the 50 metres, 100 metres, 400 metres and the 1500 metre freestyle events. She won three individual gold medals at the 2016 Summer Paralympics. She also set a Paralympic record in the 50 metre freestyle final. Cohn currently attends and swims for Loyola University, Maryland, where she is pursuing a degree in political science. She has expressed very publicly her desire to attend law school after undergraduate studies commence and to one day run for public office. She is also very involved in matters of social justice, particularly in disability rights and advocacy. She has also expressed her interest to continue training to compete in the next Olympic Games. Welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. I'm your co-host, Anthony. I'm Juliet. <laughs> I'm just complaining outside. Cool, uh, a swimmer. Yeah, so this is, um, it was kind of hard for me to... Don't get back. One second. Oh, that was a cool story. Yeah, I actually found a couple of Paralympians that uh, have this condition. It's been quite interesting to uh, see that a lot of people have uh, found ways to overcome uh, the changes in their lifestyle. So you said it's brittle bones? So the condition is called osteogenesis imperfecta, which is... Oh, okay, okay. Osteobone, genesis, creation, imperfecta, imperfect. So bad bone creation. Yeah, basically. Okay. And it's a group of genetic conditions which present from birth and they result in very brittle bones. So you break your bones very often, as in the case with uh, that uh, example, 50, 50 bone breakages. So just like constantly with broken bones? They're definitely a much more present part of your life, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so many casts I have signed at school. Yeah, that probably stops being fun, like, immediately. Yeah. Because I'm lucky to have never broken a bone, but they seem really itchy to have the cast on, and everyone who seems to break a bone, it looks very painful. Sorry for the background noise, we have a puppy that is insisting on climbing over us. And chewing a stick right next to my microphone. (laughs) Anyway. So, as I said, osteogenesis imperfecta is a group of genetic disorders. 
And the main symptoms that you'll find are that fractures occur with minimal force. So this can vary from child to child, but your bones are brittle, so that makes sense. Uh, bones may have an altered shape, so they might be shortened, or they might have a sort of uh, like bow, bow shape, like you know, bow-legged. And this would be because the uh, bones aren't forming as effectively, so they're not forming in the shape they should be. Uh, joints can also be hypermobile or extremely flexible, and the whites of the eyes may appear, may appear blue or grey, like more blue or grey than normal. What? Why? I have no idea. How does that have anything to do with bones? So, I I imagine that this has something to do with the genetic with the other effects that the genetic mutations have, rather than bones directly. Okay. Uh, there are some more symptoms. Uh, Joint and bone pain, which is doesn't seem particularly surprising if your bones are always a bit fragile and they're likely to break. So is that pain because they keep getting small, small injuries and trying to heal, or pain just because? Uh, it didn't specify, but I would assume that it's due to like small hairline fractures and things like that. Okay. Uh, there's also problems with the uh, formation of teeth or dentiogenesis, or dentinogenesis, sorry. Are teeth bones? So, teeth are a strange one. Enamel is like bone, and it uses calcium, so there are some processes for developing it that are similar to bone formation. But they're, it's a weird one. They are part of skeletal pathology when you look at, when you look at te- teeth, but you also kind of view them separately. So I don't know enough to answer that properly. <laughs> I think you just confused me more. <laughs> yeah, let's just move on from that one. It's... It's a weird grey area. Other symptoms are that uh, you know children with osteogenesis imperfecta may tire more easily easily than other children. But you know, frankly, if you're in pain all the time, that's not too surprising. Uh, hearing problems are also known to affect people with uh, osteogenesis imperfecta, um, usually after puberty. I imagine that this is probably something to do with the inner ear bones. Oh, okay. So. So individuals are born with this? Yes. And it always shows up right away? Uh, typically, yes. And um, children tend to be shorter than other children as a result of this as well, which makes sense. You know, your skeleton is uh, very important for determining your height. So if you're not able to form the bone required for, for you, your skeleton to grow, then you're not going to come towards other people. But otherwise the bones form correctly? No, uh, as I said earlier, that they, they can actually be misshapen or bowed in some cases. Oh, okay. So how does this get diagnosed? Well, like, you know, some, some, some parts are fairly straightforward. Uh, you'd use a combination of x-rays to look for fractures. So if a child has lots and lots of fractures, then uh, they, they may have osteogenesis imperfecta. And one thing I'm going to say straight away is that specialists can tell the difference between osteogenesis imperfecta and child abuse. Oh, okay. That's an important thing to note because there are some misconceptions with that. I just want to make sure that's very clear that a professional can tell the difference between like trauma fractures associated with abuse compared to fractures associated with brittle bones. They can. Yes. How? It will be to do with where the bone, where the where the breakages are, and the kind of the shape of the breakage. Okay, but it is definitely something. That really matters to 
uh, families of children with this because when you have a child with lots and lots of injuries, it's quite easy to get referred to services to check on abuse, and that's just such a terrible thing to go through when yeah. families are not abusing their children. Yes, so I, I thought I really needed to mention that very early on. Um, another thing, uh, another stage of diagnosis is a bone density scan, so a DEXA scan. And uh, at the moment, unfortunately, there isn't enough data to reliably diagnose someone with uh, osteogenesis imperfecta when they are under the age of five uh, using bone density scans. And this is just that uh, not enough data has been collected yet. So eventually, as we keep going on, we'll be able to use bone density scans to be, um, on younger children to be able to diagnose osteogenesis imperfecta as well. And I'm going to guess that there's also rather more easy ways to diagnose if if a child has like bone legs or potentially, but uh, rickets also causes bone leggedness. So there are more common issues, particularly if someone's malnourished or something like that, that can cause those symptoms. So it is useful to have at least the X-rays to look for fractures and like breakages. And when they're older, to do a bone density scan to make sure that there, you know, that there is an actual issue of bone density rather than anything else. Okay. Um, you can also do DNA testing. Thankfully, we know the genes that are involved in the different types of osteogenesis imperfecta, so that can also be done. So, what's the outlook for individuals with this? So, in most cases, life expectancy is normal, which is good to hear. Yay! And treatment can vary. So for mild to moderate cases, it's just physiotherapy and management of symptoms. It's not a life-threatening condition typically, so patients just have uh, treatments to help them manage their life and to make things a bit easier. There is uh, also vitamin D supplementation is used, which is unsurprising. You know, you need vitamin D in order to uh, utilize calcium in bone formation. So Vitamin D supplementation can help you repair your bones and build bone up. And there's also a group of drugs that are called the bisphosphate drugs. And what they do and what they do is prevent bone loss. Prevent so bone loss? Yes. So your pro your your body has a process of building and breaking down bone. Uh, and it's regulated by how much calcium is in your blood. You need a certain amount of calcium in your blood you to do certain functions. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have enough calcium in your blood, you just take some from your bone. And you if do? you have enough or you have too much, you store it in your bone. Okay. And calcium makes your bone stronger? Yes. Cal calcium is part of the structure. So. And yet your body just takes it? Well, the idea is that... This is normally under conditions of like starvation. Okay. So. Because you also need calcium for your nerves to work. So it's a lot better to have slightly weaker um, bones and a functioning nervous system than the other way around. Oh, okay. So with osteogenesis imperfecta, are you also losing bone? Or is it just in the formation of the bone? Um, you can. Uh, I think you can also... So the pro problem is that because the process of making bone is dysfunctional and the process of losing bone or, you know, using up parts of the bone is functional, you can actually have 
experience bone loss. So you could have finally got all those bones together and working in a hole and and then they break down again. Yeah. Well that sucks. Yes, yes it does. Um in more severe cases of um osteogenesis imperfecta, they surgery might actually be needed. Uh, what surgery? So placing metal rods into long bones to give them stability. So putting a steel rod into your into your femur or into your bones in your arm. What? Or uh, spinal fusion to correct scoliosis. So actually fusing some of the um, some of the vertebrae in your spine together so that they don't bend in the wrong shape. Oh my gosh! I never think about breaking bits of your spine. Well, in this case, it would be like careful uh, cutting. So you know, they they don't do a sort of Bane Batman bend them over you snap them on your leg sort of thing. It's, you know, a little bit more nuanced than that, thankfully. <laughs> okay, and also with the... You, you said they have the same outlook, but I always think of having quite brittle bro- having quite brittle bones as a symptom of old age. Yeah, or if you've had to take corticosteroids for a long period of time as well. Um, in, so... But the aging process, a lot of that is to do with um, uh, inability to uh, take in and use vitamin D as well as you get older. And when you uh, and when you take corticosteroids, the cortisol, which is the um, which is the hormone that these drugs mimic, actually triggers that process of taking calcium from your bone into the blood. And that's why in both those cases you can end up with more brittle bones. Okay, and is that the same process here? So, in this process, we're not actually forming bones, and I can explain that a little bit later if we actually get to that stage. Okay, okay. So what type of genetic condition is this? So, there is actually many subtypes. There is at least nine subtypes of osteogenesis imperfecta. No! However, it's mostly autosomal dominant. Non-sex linked? Yes. Dominant, so you can get it from either parent. Yes. So there are, um, as I said, there are nine subtypes. However, the ninety percent of these cases are due to mutations in just two genes. That's a lot of subtypes for two genes. Are they long genes? Well, it's also to do with how common uh, each subtype is. So there are uh, three subtypes that, you, that have mutations in those. Or sorry, there are four. There are four subtypes that have mutations in those two genes, and they happen to be the most common subtypes. I've, it's wild that they've identified so many subtypes of this. Well, I guess they've just been doing a lot of genetic screening of people with osteogenesis imperfecta. Oh. So, as I said, they um, with. With these two genes, which are called COL1A1 and COL1A2, they account for 90% of all cases of osteogenesis imperfecta. They are predominantly autosomal dominant. However, depending on the subtype, between 60% and just shy of 100% of cases actually happen from a random mutation. 100%? Up to. 
So, you know, it's a bit kind of like there probably are some inherited cases, but we haven't seen them. But it's dominant. Yeah, so it can be inherited in a dominant fashion. However, the way the patient is, that has been identified has got it is from a random mutation. Surprise, brittle bones. Yep. Oh, and so that, that must be so hard for all those families when their kids just have constant broken bones and nobody knows why. Yeah. And you wanted to know why the bone formation is funny? With those two genes, Col1A, um, Col1A1 and Col1A2, they both, uh, they both make major components of collagen. Okay. Collagen is that thing people try and put back in their skin, right? Yeah. It's also what makes your ears flexible, and it's also what you form in the first early stages of bone formation. So think of collagen. So, you know, when you see people making like paper mache things, and they might like make a little, like they might have some sort of netting mesh first, and then they paint the paper mache over it. Mm-hmm. Think of that mesh as the collagen it's forming first, and then the paper mache as like the calcium that you then use to make the bone. So your bone is a composite material. Okay. If you're not forming that collagen properly, then your bones lack structure, they're not going to form properly, and you can't make cartilage as well, which means that you're going to have less efficient bone repair and growth. You can't make cartilage? Not as effectively, no. But aren't loads of... Like, isn't your nose made of cartilage? Yes, yeah. So do you just not have a nose? No, you have that. You can't make some of these things as effectively. So when you're talking about when you're growing as a baby, then you, you start making them at that point. Um, but yeah, so you can't make cartilage. And when bone grows, as well as you having like these sort of collagen layers coming out, you have a cartilage cap that forms that then turns into bone. So it's like kind of like painting layers. Yeah. So bone growth is less effective in people with these mutations. And that's why you end up being shorter. It's also why you don't get as much bone formation because you don't have the structures being built that then allow you to actually make the bone around it. Okay. And the bones you do have lack some of that cartilage structure. Yes. So they like don't have a core part to keep it all together. They have less of it. So it's, it's like you, it's like you were making a tower with less pieces. So you might still be able to make the tower, but it's going to be, uh, it might be less stable, um, or it might not be able to maintain its shape. Okay, and that's all because this gene doesn't let you form collagen. Yeah, a major component of it. Um, so yeah, and it's not the rarest of conditions, but it's not super common either. Okay, how common is it? So. In the USA, they've reported about one in every 20,000 births. Okay. So, rare. It's a rare condition, but it's not like some of the super rare ones that we've been covering. Um, although, for some very strange unknown reasons, the uh, the Shona and the... I'm not going to get the name right here, but the um, the the, the, the Endebola of people of Zimbabwe seem to have a higher proportion of the type 3 and type 1 subgroups of osteogenesis infecta compared to other people. Huh, I mean, I guess if it is dominant and if 
they were fairly isolated communities, you could end up quite easily with a population with a higher proportion. But, um, but, but we don't have the evidence to say one way or the other why it's happened yet. So it's just a, it's just a little uh, genetic mystery at the moment. Ooh. And um, on that note, we aren't covering other illnesses because this one is fairly central to the, the bone problems and we'll be taking a break. Huh, okay. History time. Yeah, it's history time. Tell me the things. What do you want to know? So, how old is this disease? Good question. So, as far as ancient records are concerned, uh, we have actually identified osteogenesis imperfecta in an ancient mummy. What? So, from bone density scans of Egyptian mummies that we found, uh, there is a mummy dating back to 1000 BC that has been clinically identified to have osteogenesis imperfecta. Like because of the genes or just because the bones seemed all brittle because they were super old? I believe it's a bit of both. <laughs> it does feel like most mummies' bones would be pretty brittle, doesn't it? Yeah, but you could also compare them to other mummies. You could use a reference point, but it also it could be bone shape. The problem was that the uh, the source I found referenced a few things and didn't go into the uh, and then I couldn't get access to the original file. Oh, okay. Frustrating. So we're going to assume there is good science behind this. We just don't know it. Well, and so, that they didn't just go up to a mummy and start like tapping the bones. Well, no, it's been cited and peer reviewed, so it is good science. I just don't have access to it because this happens sometimes. Okay. <laughs> there's also uh, there's also reason to believe that the uh, Norse king Ivar the Boneless may have had this. The Boneless. Well. That's what he was known as. Was he all wiggly? I don't know. Again, this is one that they haven't covered in much detail. But the... you can't just call someone the Boneless and not tell everyone why. Yeah, but we do have a fairly incomplete written record from the uh, Norse from Norse people. Get it together, ancient Norse people. But uh, interestingly, uh, as a result of that, the uh, the television series Norseman has uh, decided to take that interpretation as they go through their series. So they have Ivar the Bonus in it, and he is being just depicted in a clinically accurate way as having osteogenesis imperfecta. So it's it's interesting that this like the the show's decided to take that that take on it based on what we think might be the case. The boneless. Yeah. Wow. Well, I guess that's a good description. If you know, the bones were kind of sharp and not performing very well. Well, it's not the worst description to give someone. It's a very very Viking name. It sounds like a cross between somebody between calling somebody spineless and Saying somebody they have erectile dysfunction. No! <sighs> Boneless. Oh, I'm just, I'm just imagining, like, a wibbly jellyfish of a man. 
Something tells me he would not have been able to be Norse king if he had been a jellyfish, kind of jello human. I don't know, they have some weird myths. Yeah, the ones that we have. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so those are kind of the furthest dating. So those are the furthest dating back examples that we can find that either may or in some cases are osteogenesis imperfecta. But um, there, there's possibly a way we could indirectly trace this condition. Okay. So there are other animals that get osteogenesis imperfecta. Like what? Oh, let me guess. Hamsters. Uh, no, but we've got mice. You considered that? <laughs> that was a legitimate guess? Yeah. Really? Well, yeah, they're mammals. We're mammals. It's not unreasonable. Wow. I have learned things, definitely, and wasn't just saying a random cute animal. Anyway. <laughs> you just... Anyway, want to guess another animal? Probably chimpanzees. Uh, no, I haven't got that one. Oh. Can you try something closer to home? That is closer to home. Oh, the puppy that is barking right now? Yes. Oh no, brittle, brittle bone dogs? Yes, there are some. So, uh, golden retrievers get the mutation in the Col1A1 gene and can get osteogenesis infected. Little short retrievers? Thank you for your input, Banjo. And beagles can get mutations. <laughs> beagles can get mutations in the Col1A1 um, A2 gene. Ooh. So dogs are a group that can get osteogenesis imperfecta. Mice, little pups in little casts, potentially. And there's also some fish, which include the zebrafish. Fish? Yes, they have bones. What happens if a fish bone is broken? It doesn't feel like there's that much bone to... I mean, fish may die. Depends. Would it just not be able to swim and sink? Probably. Oh. But, so looking at that, we can kind of, you know, do the, our little uh, family tree tra trace back through history thing to get where... Um, these mutations or the propensity for these genes to mutate may have kind of originated. Mm -hmm. And if we look for the common ancestor of humans, dogs, mice, and fish, including our zebrafish, then the uh, kind of established common ancestor of all of them lived about 375 million years ago. So a propensity to have Dysfunction in this gene, in these genes, could be like 400 million years old. Whoa! And I guess that makes sense. If you've got um, bone, having bones has been around for a very long time, so having problems with your bones has also got to be around for a long time. And I guess you said there's so many um, forms of, what do we call it? Types of. Subtypes of There's so many subtypes of this condition, so it's loads of different ways that 
collagen or bone production can go wrong. And if a bunch of them are spontaneous, it ends up very easy to have a condition like this. Yes, yes, definitely. I've realized why he's being a pain. What? He doesn't understand daylight savings, and it is there for his lunchtime. Oh, God. So, how has this survived for 400 million years if it probably meant that lots of animals with it died? So, the gene itself is normally fine, and it's just, it's like, as I said before, in certain subtypes, almost a hundred percent of the cases end up being from a random mutation. So if it's if it if it's just a gene that's prone to dysfunction and it's fine most of the time, then it doesn't it won't get selected against. And when there are random cases of people getting it or uh, animals getting osteogenesis imperfecta from a mutation. It might get selected out and they can't pass on their specific mutation, but the mutations will still occur later from other people having random mutations, and therefore it's not actually selected against. So it survives because it's always a fun surprise! Basically, yeah. So what's the more modern history of this disease? Okay, so the uh, earliest studies of osteogenesis imperfecta began in 1788. It's pretty early. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it was done by a uh, Swedish doctor, um, Olaf Jakob Ekman, and uh, he described the condition, condition in his uh, doctoral thesis and mentioned cases of going back to 1678. Why are there all these people that are managing much more fundamentally life-changing things in their thesis than I am? <laughs> Get it together, Ange! Uh, <laughs> I think it's because they named all the diseases. I, I think it's, a, it's just that we had less information back then, so anything in discovery was more fundamental. So, so our, our following that, in 1831, Edmund Axman, yes, that is his name, Axman, described the condition himself, um, sorry, described the condition in himself and two brothers. That's one reason to go into medicine. Yeah, yeah, that's one way to do it. And then later on... Wait, and two brothers? Yes. Oh, poor parents. Yeah, so in that case, what probably happened is one of the parents may have just developed the mutation and passed it on, and then they weren't very well characterized or something. I, I don't know, it's, it's, but it's very unfortunate in that situation. And then just a couple of years later, in 1833, uh, Jean, Jean Lobstein uh, was also treating adult cases of the condition as well. So the 1800s is when things really started to kind of get moving on people understanding what osteogenesis imperfecta was and identifying cases and trying to help. Did you find out anything about how they were treating it in the 1800s? No. Okay. No, I didn't. Um, I imagine it was probably just a lot of casts and maybe bleeding. Bleeding fixes everything, obviously. Mm. So, <coughs> so then, <coughs> you stop tantruming, buddy. So then, jumping forward. To <coughs> 
at the end, you're going to have to do a whole whole outtake section. Um, so then jumping forward to the 1850s, uh, Dr. Willem Vrolich was also working on a condition, and he was, um, he was uh, the first person to get the name of osteogenesis imperfecta as associated with the condition when he clinically described it. And then, um, sorry, this is getting very difficult. I have a dog showing on my hand. And then the idea that uh, adult and newborn forms of this case were actually the same condition wasn't identified until 1897 uh, by Dr. Martin Benno-Schmidt. So beforehand, what they thought was that if you saw it in a child, they had a child's case of osteogenesis imperfecta. And if you saw it in an adult, they had an adult's case of osteogenesis imperfecta. But then we realized as we got more information, that some of these cases, they were the same subtype because they presented themselves in the same way, but someone just happened to be diagnosed as a child because maybe theirs was more severe, whilst someone else was diagnosed as an adult that they had milder symptoms. Oh, okay. So some people can have it where they're making enough collagen and happen to not get to her as a child that nobody notices, yeah. but they have had it their whole life. Yeah, and I mean, there could also be, particularly, like, uh, when you're looking at the 1800s, 1900s, and even in some cases now, it might be access to uh, access to physicians could be a real issue for people as well. Yeah, and also, with lots of children, you kind of just expect them to... Hurt themselves? Yeah. <laughs> yes, child has broken nose. What did they do? Run into a wall. <laughs> so, where are we headed in the future with this? It sounded earlier that it sounded from your description earlier that we already are pretty good at treating it. Yeah, yeah, and um, so there are a couple of options that people are looking into for uh, maybe more long-term treatment that might actually prevent the condition. So there is a, there, there is a look into uh, stem cell therapy. We're currently at the preclinical stage, so this hasn't actually been tested in any people, so we're a long way from it getting into anyone's hands. So, so stem cell therapy is where you uh, fix the stem cells that would then be used to create all the bones in the body. Yeah. So in, in this specific one, what they were using is what are called multipotent stem cells. What they mean... Super powerful? which have already specialized a little bit, so they can change into lots of them, but within a certain group. So maybe it's all the cells that are involved in your skeleton, or all the cells that are involved in making blood, or all the cells that are involved in making neuronal tissue. Okay. And so in this case, they would use multipotent ones for the skeleton, and they would put them into the, uh, into the patient's um, like area, areas that need fixing, so that these stem cells come in place and then they start making more functional bone. Cool. And they also start making more cells that will then also be able to make more functional bone. Do bodies accept stem cells or is that one of the things that bodies tend to reject? So the clever thing is that they can modify your own stem cells so they wouldn't get rejected. Or the other thing you can also do is you can actually modify stem cells so that they don't have the markers on them that your body would use to identify them as not belonging to you. Cool. 
And does stem cell therapy work forever, or is it something you need a dose of every so often? So that's something that I'm in no position to be able to answer properly, because particularly for this case, we're at a preclinical stage, so we have no idea what this would do in a person at all. We just know, we have some idea of what it will do in animals, but we don't do particularly long-term studies in animals, because that is a ethically dubious Okay, I was just wondering about stem cells in general, but... I, I, I just, I don't understand the subject well enough, to be honest, it's not my specialty. Okay, yeah. so there might be much more advanced treatment or cures coming. Yes, there's, a, there's another kind of treatment. So, because we do know the genes, and you notice that I didn't mention when these genes are characterised, and that's again because I hit a li literature barrier where none of the papers that would mention any of this stuff or go into further detail given the sources for it were mm. accessible. This happens sometimes in science. It's a real problem. Um, but we do know what those genes are, and we do have ways of targeting them. So we can use another form of treatment, which again, this is only at the preclinical stage, which is called antisense therapy. Antisense? So we use what's called antisense oligonucleotides. Those were some words. Okay, so oligonucleotides, lots of nucleotides. So the things that make up DNA. Yeah. A, G, C, T, those. Antisense. So if you have the, the strand that makes the gene, the sense strand, the antisense strand is the bit that matches it. So basically it's a line of DNA that matches a section of your DNA or the RNA that you're making. And the idea is that it sticks to it and therefore your body doesn't read it. So it's it's like um, it's like a mute button for some of your genetic functions. Oh, so you you basically put a blocker on that section of DNA? Yeah, so you use this DNA, this um, antisense strand, which matches the faulty gene to silence its activity. And then that should reduce the proportion of faulty gene protein being formed. So then the, because most cases patients have one copy, because it's a dominant one, then the functional gene takes over because you've silenced the dysfunctional one. Oh, so the, the, the other copy is just kind of, it just sits there your whole life and isn't used? Well, it's, it's basically been pushed out by the dominant effect of the other one. So if you make the dominant one less effective, then the more functional one actually gets to have more of an impact on your body. So this would reduce symptoms. It wouldn't stop them. Yeah, it, I guess it, it confuses me because I'd assume if you muted a gene, then you just wouldn't get any collagen produced, even if it was bad collagen. Yeah, but because you have a dysfunctional gene and you have a functional gene, they have different sequences, so you can target the dysfunctional one because you've got two copies. Remember, you have you you have two you have you have a copy from your mom and your copy from your dad. Yeah, I just kind of assumed that your body kind of merges them into one, and then no, no, it just randomly chooses to read one of them and not the other. So you keep the two dominance. copies your whole life. Yep. Okay, I know this is silly, but I'd never realized that. I thought they just merged into one thing. Ah, oh, science.
And uh, that's it for um, what's coming up in the future. There wasn't that much, unfortunately. Yeah. So at the moment, uh, individuals with this mutation, you know, have to, they don't really have a cure, and the treatments are more about helping them kind of cope instead of fixing the problem. Yeah, yeah, it's very hard to address the fundamental issue. Yeah, so it can be really quite difficult for those patients right now. Yes, yes, um, definitely, and I think, um, and I think that uh, understanding more about what the condition is and what people can do to help is probably the most we can do right now. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the stigmas you found with this disease. Okay. So I, I found uh, on a, one of the uh, charity websites for um, osteogenesis imperfecta research and awareness, I found uh, a list of some of the, the myths that they found like most frustrating and the, you know, the, the actual facts behind them. Yeah. So the first myth is that a baby with osteogenesis imperfecta should always be carried on a pillow and discouraged from moving. This is probably a sort of wives' tale sort of thing. Yeah. Babies. I mean, it's, I guess you don't want baby to hurt themselves, but also you kind of need baby to move. You kind of need baby to move and develop muscle. Yes. And uh, as, as they said, all, and the, the, the fact behind it is that although handling techniques and precautions are encouraged, you need to have, you need to handle a baby with osteogenesis imperfecta slightly differently. I do not know the specific technique, and I would not be instructing it here. Um, immobility can actually increase bone loss, because if you're not using your muscles and you're not putting that tension on them, then the bones aren't kind of maintaining that system of, oh, we need to keep this structurally stable because we're using it. Oh, so if if you're laid up in bed for ages... You can you have bone loss and not just muscle loss? Yes. Really? Yeah. I thought your mu- I thought your bones just kind of sit there and your muscles waste away. So the both can happen. It's not a process I fully understand, but uh, but if, it, if your bones, to a lesser extent than your muscles, do take a if you don't use it, you lose it kind of approach. Huh. This this podcast making me really grateful for my skeleton. Mm-hmm. It probably helps that the last few ones we've been doing have involved bones. So the next myth is that fractures caused by osteogenesis infecta can be easily distinguished from those caused from child abuse. Now, you know, as I said earlier, a specialist can identify the difference. That is true. So you can you can you can do it. However, it does need to be done by a medical professional who is familiar with the full range of osteogenesis imperfecta characteristics. So Yeah, your kind of social worker is not going to be able to figure it out. No, but also a lot, there are a decent number of doctors that wouldn't be able to either. So you would need to, you know, if, if you were to say, no, my child has this condition, and if they have the condition, they probably are being seen by a specialist, then you would need their input in this sort of situation so that social services do not take a child away from a healthy family, from a happy family, because it looks like they have Gosh, signs of abuse. That's so hard when you've not gotten a diagnosis yet. Yes, and, and I understand that you know it's important to say that 
we can distinguish the differences between abuse and osteogenesis imperfecta, but it is very important to point out that's not easy. Because otherwise, because if we assume that it's easy, we run the risk of setting a president that could ruin a lot of people's lives. Yeah. The next myth I found is that osteogenesis imperfecta only affects the bones. Now, remember, it's involved in cartilage, so it makes sense that it shouldn't just be the bones. Um, so, non-skeletal um, symptoms can occur, rarely. Like? So they can affect the heart, the skin, what? the blood vessels. Why the heart? Because your blood, because your heart is held together with connective tissue, and connective tissue uses collagen. Oh dear. So these can be affected, uh, and you can also experience some breathing problems and excessive pers- perspiration. I have no idea why it did that. Okay. Um, but these are, typic- these are typically less common than bone issues. Okay, makes sense. The next myth is that osteogenesis imperfecta is a childhood disorder and that people grow out of it by their teens. I have no idea what the origins for that one is. I mean, I guess it's just... As you get older, you spend a little bit less time running around and jumping off things. Yeah, maybe. But uh, So the go-home message is that this is a lifelong condition. Uh, another myth is... Another myth is that people with osteogenesis imperfecta are diagnosed at birth. Well, no, because it's often spontaneous and you wouldn't know to look for it. Yeah, and also remember how I said that we don't have enough data to diagnose anyone under the age of five based on bone density? So, you know, it's it's like there's plenty of cases where we won't diagnose a case. And although it is present from conception, uh, it'll be diagnosed at different times based predominantly on the severity of the condition and the subtype. Makes sense. And the final myth is that people who have osteogenesis imperfecta cannot have children. Why not? I don't know, so I had to look into this one a little bit, but it doesn't affect fertility, and many men and women who have osteogenesis imperfecta do have children, they can have children, and they have had children, um, but possibly the reason it came from is that some women who have osteogenesis imperfecta can experience pregnancy complications. Oh, it could be, yeah, it could be quite dangerous, I guess. In some cases, yeah. If you had a very weak pelvis. Yeah, and I think this is very much a case-by-case scenario. Yeah, talk to your doctor. um, Talk to your gynecologist, uh, talk to the bone specialist, yeah. But also, this is one where if you had it... And knowing it's a dominant condition with modern medicine, you would likely, um, if you if you had access to it, seek fertility consultation and think about whether IVF was best. Yeah. And on that, we are at the end of the episode. Okay. If thanks for that, that was really interesting. You're welcome. If you enjoyed this podcast, get in touch with us on our Facebook group on Twitter at GeneticDrift1, or on email at GeneticDriftPodcast at gmail.com. Let us know if you have any topics you'd like us to cover in future. Yeah.
And while my puppy is chewing my hand, the music of this podcast, as with every other episode, is brought by bloody help William Kitchener Music, so please check that out. And before we go, I'd just like to say before your judgment, because you can't see the jeans, so don't expect to see the illness. It's a good boy for me, it's a good boy for me. Banjo. It was bye for me. Bye.